Uh, welcome back to the Arbitration Station, episode five. Landmark episode. Landmark. Ep- Why is it a landmark episode? Well, in in many ways. First of all, it's the first episode that we're recording after we published and True. went live, right? Because the other ones we sort of uh, did uh, in secret before we actually published it. So now we have a lot of input and yeah. feedback from and, listeners. And we got a lot. We got a lot of messages. We got a lot of tweets. We got a lot of LinkedIn messages. Mostly positive, except for my dad. I didn't tell you this. My, da- my dad no. said there was, you know, an audio issue in the first episode, which is true. Uh, but we fixed it, as you can tell. Uh, yeah, I, I can't. But maybe maybe <laughs> listeners will be able to. Right. Yeah, because we, we got to... Uh, you went away uh, out in the Stockholm uh, commercial world somewhere and bought fancy recording equipment right yes so we sent a little pitch to the young arbitrators of sweden and we told them about our little fledgling of an idea of a podcast and they were quick to respond with uh some funding and they said that they would support us in getting all of our equipment that we need uh so we will be amping up the volume more ways than one um that was another comment we got that it was for the people going on their runs or doing uh, listening to the podcast in their car um, that they wanted it, us to turn up the volume. So hopefully this will work. But on a related note, this is also a landmark episode in the sense that we are recording remotely. Where? So we're not the same place for the first time. I know. Where are you, Joel? I'm. Uh, that might be a problem. I'm, I just realized I'm in a in a cabin in the southeast of Sweden where I've holed up to grow a beard and and uh, write my dissertation. But I, so I'm looking at basically. I think I'm looking at Poland on the other side of the ocean, and I can hear the ocean a lot. Can you? That's uh, no. But even if I do it, it would be very calming. Yeah, and in the future, I will also have access to the good stuff that you have now to record exactly. the audio. So it will be even better in the future. Exactly. So I'm in Stockholm uh, in my apartment, actually, about to go to work, but uh, just wanted to get this recording in really quickly this is also work this is work this is definitely work but we have we have ways to contact us now we have a website that joel so magnificently set up called the arbitrationstation.com we also have a twitter joel what's our twitter handle i think it's at the arb station but it's on the web page the web page is the easiest way to go through because everything is in there how to uh, find us on twitter how to find the email address and so on and we have, uh, and you can keep downloading. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, when you go into iTunes, there's a little subscribe button. Uh, we will be knowing, hopefully shortly, how many subscribers we have because iTunes will give us some analytics. But um, just based off the feedback we've got so far, we've had a, quite a wide reach geographically, don't you think? Yeah, and I think uh, there was um, a need for this, a demand for this type of, of podcast. So that, that should keep us going for at least five more episodes, right? <laughs> yeah, and th- we just need more funding. <laughs> uh, but no, I have fun doing this. So even if we're sitting on the side of a corner of a street and it's me and you, you know, doing arbitration station for quarters, I would do it for you, Joel. Perfect. I'll do it for you. <laughs> so let's, let's get into the topics we have for today. What yeah, you- it's a nice alliteration. It's costs and conferences. Right. The first uh, is a little bit more substantive and uh, seemingly arcane subject, but very, very important in practice. 
how much does it cost uh, and who pays for what? Important questions. Yes. And secondly, the more happy, fun, time-related topic is going to be the conferencing strategies. We are going to provide our listeners with a field book now on how to behave at all the international arbitration conferences that are now getting back into business as we approach the fall season conference season it's hunting season joel yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh no but i think it's i think there is a decorum uh in a conf an unsaid decorum that people hold during conferences and i think that there's some people who do it really well i think there's people that are too aggressive i think that there's people who let these opportunities fly by um and so not that we're in our yeah we are we are (laughs) yeah so in our capacity as as conferencing experts we will give some guidance perfect all right well let's get started with the first topic Welcome back. And now we have our first topic, which has to do with costs. Joel, what do you have? <laughs> well, I have not as much as you do, I assume, because you are actually working with this. But from the academic perspective, the, the costs in arbitration is something that you normally do not teach in law school. Specifically, I mean, not even in the arbitration-specific master programs that, that there are out there, you rarely have the time to go into that seemingly nerdy detail on the costs. But I found out after teaching at the master's program in Uppsala for a few years that the students want to know <laughs> what right. is this? Because every award basically ends with everything from you know between a few paragraphs to five pages of cost awards or reasoning for how the costs are apportioned so and it's even funny because you have you finish the hearing and you celebrate and you go out and have a fancy dinner with your client and everyone's shaking hands and you think it's all over and we're just going to wait for the award but then this cost the statement of cost things come and i think people really underestimate the like legal issues that can come up in that yeah so that's why we're we're doing this it's a way to from my perspective to compensate for the lack of academic teaching in the on the subject right and i think we will talk a little bit about both the investment arbitration sphere and the commercial arbitration sphere to the extent that there are any differences which i'm not really sure but uh, we'll see where we end up and generally speaking the costs are to be paid by the parties and they consist of three posts or three legs first we have the common costs like for the proceedings, which are split into two different posts. First, the tribunal and all the fees associated with the tribunal. And secondly, the administering costs, which in 95% of the cases are costs that the institution charges for administering the case. So those are the first two uh, posts, the tribunal and the administering costs. But the absolutely largest part is the third post, i.e. the costs borne by the parties and bringing their claims, lawyers, experts, expenses, etc. And by some estimates, the combined value of the parties' costs are normally more than 75% of the total costs. Oh, yeah, definitely. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, I, unless you get an arbitrator from New Zealand, uh, their, their costs are not the, the biggest chunk. <laughs> 
Yeah, which is also important to keep in mind when we're talking about how expensive arbitration is. It's normally counsel, the, the lawyers representing the parties. That's where the costs are primarily, and not the arbitrators or, or the institution. It's important to keep in mind. But for the sake of understanding, we can assume that the default mode in how these three like legs and, and, and the, the parts of the costs are apportioned is everything else being equal. And there are many, many, many reservations and modifications to this, but everything else being equal, each party normally bears its own costs, its own lawyer fees and expenses. And then the parties split the fees for the tribunal and the administration evenly. But this depends a lot on the applicable arbitration rules. Exactly. And because some rules, I know, at least from experience, that the UNCITRAL, the LCIA, and the CTAC rules establish a loser pays presumption, meaning that the losing party should pay also at least part of the winning party's fees. And most other rules give the arbitrators very, very, very wide discretion to allocate the costs with no presumption established. Uh, so they have to take into account a lot of things, maybe primarily the conduct of the parties doing the proceedings, right? Right, exactly. Uh, with this loser pays, would you call that the uh, cost follow the event? Would you say yeah. that's the same thing? Yeah, that's the same thing. It's a less sexy phrase, but it's, it's <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the policy, I mean, there's different policy reasons behind, um, behind each one of these theories. I think the cost follow event one is kind of to deter frivolous claims and to make it more punitive for people that are bringing claims that should not have been brought. Um, yeah. And then when you're talking about the factors, you have um, the conduct of a party in the proceedings as well could kind of be, you know, a party bringing counterclaims that should not have been brought or inflating a counterclaim estimate in order to increase the value of the of the claim. Yeah. Um, and that could be something, for example, like the SEC their entire cost structure is based off the amount in question or the amount in dispute. And when you have a party who's just throwing in a counterclaim for a lot of money, that should not be something that the party who wins should have to bear the brunt of because the arbitrator fees are affected by that and everything, you know, in that situation. So um, in that sense, and then you have the other way, which is you said that more of this like cost sharing approach. Um, and I don't know... I mean, because there, there have been some scholars that say that costs follow the event is kind of like the overarching rule. I think I read some scholars say that it was part of international law uh, at this point. But yeah. I, I don't think that's the truth. Like you said, I think the cost sharing is something that has come up quite a lot. Yeah, it does. And I can mostly speak from the investment arbitration perspective. And I, I cover, as you know, uh, a lot of awards for investment arbitration reporter. And we always end the analysis of, of any given award with a few paragraphs on the cost reasoning. And from that perspective, it's, you know, it's super unclear if there are any uh, trends or even like established uh, precedents or, or general ways in which tribunals approach this matter in the investment arbitration sphere. I read last week only for my dissertation and the Schroyer commentary to the Exit Convention he writes, and I quote now, the practice of exit tribunals in apportioning costs is neither clear nor uniform. Right. That's really like, no, Sherlock, this is <laughs> exactly my impression as well. And maybe a need for 
someone to look into further. Yeah, I mean, in the commercial sense, the starting off point is that parties should agree to this in their contracts um, so that it should be in the arbitration clause who bears the costs. I did a case where it was like a franchise agreement and the franchisor had in the costs that the franchisee would bear the burden of the arbitration fees. Um, This gets into an entire thing about the uneven the imbalance between the parties, you know, you have the franchisor and then you have the, the small little yeah. franchisee, should they be the burden? Um, but this is just the starting off point that it shows up in the contract. Um, very few contracts have that, um, A, because they just don't have the foresight of that. They don't have the lawyers to think about that in ahead of time. You know, the arbitration clause is called the sunset clause because it's, you know, at the end of the day, right? Or the midnight clause or whatever they call it. Yeah. Um, and then absent the party agreement, then, as you said, you look to the national law, and that does not give us anything more, really, um, aside from some mandatory rules that come up in different national laws, you don't really get anywhere. So then you end up with this arbitrator discretion standard. And as you said, it kind of jumps all over the place. With investment, I would say that it's a bit better because you have so many published awards and that people can kind of draw yeah, sure, You can say with confidence that there's no investment treaty giving any guidance on this point either no, no, even no. even even fewer than in contracts but you're right that there's at least a body of law but but as we all know there's no binding precedent in international law or in international arbitration so you, you can as a party you cannot really be sure which way it's going to go definitely um there's some rules that i found that had a rebuttable presumption that the successful party would be able to recover the reasonable cost so it's kind of a cost follow the event theme or rebuttable presumption and that was in like the dis rules the finland rules the swiss rules and even uncetral i saw um had this kind of rebuttable presumption but that gets us into assessing what is a reasonable cost yes which is a pretty arbitrary exercise in and of itself i think yeah and that's um that's actually something that i had wanted to look into and it's kind of what is included in a reasonable cost or what is a reasonable cost um, because as you said, you have the party's fees, the arbitrator's fees, and then the institution fees. And I mean, I think the institution fees are always pretty much reasonable because that's their job. Yeah. Um, but arbitrator fees, what, what, um, let's like jump off our scripts for a second. What do you think is reasonable, uh, travel? Do, do you think getting a secretary, maybe someone that's a secretary employed at their law firm, is that a reasonable cost? Um, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> not that, that. This ties into our inaugural yeah. episode discussion. I think no. I mean, I, I, specifically for the secretary, I don't think the parties should pay extra for a secretary. I think that should come out of the uh, the tribunal's fees, as we discussed in the first episode. Right. But for the the wider question on on what are reasonable costs. For the arbitrators, I think there's a pretty well-functioning market. No, it's it's transparent in the sense that you have a standard, and of course, when it comes to flights and hotels, arbitrators sort of tend to gravitate towards the the upper end of of what's available. Yeah, of course. And but I think that's all fine and well because I think it's first-class flights and five-star accommodation. 
Well, maybe not always, depending on the circumstances. But you know, business class and the the fifth best hotel in the <laughs> in the area, so that you can walk to the hearings and we'll you know see. wake up well rested. Is this some sort of pitch to be appointed, Joel? That you're not going to like run up the cost? <laughs> then I would say the other thing. I think arbitrators should only stay in hostels right. and write their own fights <laughs> to the hearing. Could you imagine <laughs> seeing an arbitrator in a hostel, just like waking up early, putting on a suit? I did that when I was interviewing, actually, before I got my job that I have now. I was interviewing and I couldn't afford anything. So I was putting a suit and like shaving in a hostel bathroom. And I was like, I remember looking in the mirror and like some sort of Kafka-esque moment being like, oh yeah, really? This it's like a is Will the lowest low. You should be a single father also taking care of your yeah, two exactly. daughters. Like breastfeeding, but there's like no milk. Um, yeah, that happens. No, so, but this, and another thing that this, this discussion ties into is something that I know we have discussed, and this is a matter of public record. So this we can talk about with with uh, some comfort is the in the ASCOM Stati et al versus Kazakhstan a big ECT award was challenged in Stockholm it was seated in Stockholm which is why we know about it and I attended the hearings when they challenged the award uh, and uh, for my for my research and I think the judgment from the Svea Court of Appeal which did not set aside the award came out last year late 2016 and there was an interesting discussion there because the investors uh, used the services of the eminent Gary Bourne as an expert in the set-aside proceedings. Right. And he or they, the investors, had requested $350,000 for his expert report and uh, for his cost associated with appearing as a witness. And he, he showed up in Stockholm and got very few questions from opposing counsel. So he was active for maybe five minutes in the hearings. I was going to say, wasn't it like three questions? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But of course, you also wrote an expert report, which I have been going through for my research, and it's uh, by by all means, it's a very thorough report, but it's still $350,000. Right. Which to the Swedish court, interestingly, they said something about that. That's very, very high, but that's the way they do it in international arbitration. So it seems reasonable the losing party has to fork out. Right. Well, the, the whole expert uh, costs in and of themselves. I mean, you have people just bulking up their expert teams um, to no avail. You know, they're used in the statement of claim or very early on, and then they just disappear because the experts were found irrelevant or redundant. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is something to take into consideration. Yeah, I think that's a big gray zone because, as you say, you tend to have several experts and the market rate isn't as clear as it is for, for arbitrators or for counsel. No, definitely not. And they charge so much. I mean, they charge... Th- that's my retirement plan. <laughs> I just have to find out what I'm an expert in. Yeah, one thing. You need to be very, very good at one thing. Yeah, and you're oh, on your way with your PhD. That's always, but that's maybe too late for you because you're already a lawyer and you, by definition, do not know how to account. But being a uh, damages guy, <laughs> I think that's the best retirement plan. It's so true. It's so true. I've sat with so many Excel sheets and been like, wow, you know, it's like burning my brain. Uh, There's some other controversial costs I want your opinion on, Joel. Um, Costs before the arbitration. So negotiations that have failed, um, any sort of conciliation or mediation before the arbitration. Interesting. Um, The ICC cost report said that those should be recoverable. 
Um, but I think there is an argument to be said that that is not included um, in the cost. So, so it's something that has to be settled outside of the scope of the arbitration. You mean that it's the parties are by themselves, basically? Yeah, I mean, are you going to say that you have to pay the flights of the people coming to the negotiation that ends up failing, or that is just a? Well, I mean, as always, that depends. I guess if it says so in the contract that there's a mandatory, you know, cooling off, you have to negotiate X amount of times or whatnot. Yeah. So it's it's like intrinsically linked to the arbitration that you cannot go to arbitration before you have done X, Y, and Z. Right. Then maybe it, it I think it's justified. I mean, then you have that soft clause that's good faith negotiations, which then you'll have to bring up some better arguments. <laughs> yeah. What totally. about um, ancillary proceedings? So you have to go to court to get a provisional measure, or I think that would obviously be included, but maybe some, some other court proceedings that are happening in parallel. Mm, good. This is why it's good that we have at least one person on this podcast who works with cases like this, because I haven't <laughs> thought about that. To think about the theoretical side. No, but I mean, things that happen in practice that you maybe yeah, yeah. don't think about in books. Well, that's true. I mean, normally... Isn't it so that most courts, I mean, you have to, you have a separate question before the courts because the courts, as we talked about in the Ascomstati challenge, I mean, the the challenge maybe is one thing, but in most cases, the courts also have to make decisions on cost, right? right? So you cannot recover your costs for an ancillary proceeding in the court and then do it in the arbitration. You can only do it once. Right, right. Uh, I guess. Yeah, no, I, that's kind of what I was reading as well, is that the answer would be no, but there are some exceptions um, to jurisdictions that allow it. I think it would just have to be expressly in the uh, arbitration law. Um, then I also <laughs> looked at third-party funding, with, just to go back to one of our earlier episodes. Should thir- the fees to retain third-party funders, um, should that be something that is included in the determination on the allocation of costs. And well, what's the, the consensus on that? I, we talked about it a few episodes ago, but I can't remember. Uh, you know? I, we didn't talk about it in the other episode, I don't believe. But um, the Queen Mary did their, you know, ICCA task force. Yeah. Um, did a little uh, survey of it and said, not little, I'm sure it was big and amazing and thorough. Um, <laughs> they said that it is a cost within the definition of costs for the arbitration, but, and, but it should not be relevant to determining the allocation of costs. So not to say, okay, this person had third-party funding. They're mm-hmm. not as poor, quote-unquote, as what I we're see. trying to deter. But it's not appropriate to award uh, the funding of this type of costs. Uh, the principle should be that the tribunal lacks jurisdiction over those costs. That's what they found. But I remember reading in my research for the other episode that um, it could it could potentially be awarded. Um maybe not the success fee that they get or, you know, that they have to end up paying the third party funder, but that the retainer fee uh, could be a cost since it is a necessary cost for bringing your claim. Mm. I see. I guess once again, as always, we're back to our tribunal discretion. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I've seen as being secretary. And in the cases I've worked at as well, it's a finger in the air approach. As I yeah, like very much so. But I, I mean, you. I think it's very interesting, and I think tribunals are more relu- not too reluctant, I would say, to award to really look into the party's conduct because I think there's so many delay tactics and so many 
you know, behavioral issues with counsel uh, on their high horse that I think could be really discouraged if you, especially in the investment context, when there's so many tactics to delay. Um, This was brought up to the surface very much earlier this summer when the final award in Philip Morris versus Australia was released. Uh, In this case, as you probably know, is a well-known boogeyman, Mm -hmm. uh, the tobacco plain packaging case. And Australia won on jurisdictional grounds because the tribunal found that Philip Morris had restructured its its investment after the, the dispute arose with the purpose of obtaining investment treaty protection. So they were abusing a right. Right. And in the f- published final award this summer, it's clear that Philip Morris was ordered to pay part of Australia's costs because of this abuse of right. But all the numbers were redacted from the final award, leading to a lot of speculation in both Australia and the global arbitration community as to what what, are, what were the costs and how much, in fact, uh, did it cost Philip Morris to try this bad yeah. faith attempt at a treaty case? And there was there were media claims in Australia that Australia, the state, had paid fifty million Australian dollars in, in defending its claim. But I think, thanks to IA reporter, uh, this unconfirmed figure uh, now is also believed to cover a lot of other parallel cases in uh-huh. the. Double- WTO and domestic courts and whatnot. So it was probably uh, somebody confused it somehow. Uh, but in any event, it was a big case, and probably the state spent at least you know two figure amount of million dollars. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, I see I see your point because you have the potential of, and I guess it goes both ways. You know that you also have obstructing states trying to to delay and complicate what is a good faith case. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I rarely, I mean, I haven't seen in my limited experience that, uh, you know, that they're going to tit for tat or do a, like small reductions here or there. Okay, you you flew first class, maybe you could do business next time. I mean, there, there's not that type of reasoning. Um, and then you also see between jurisdictions, um, even on the, you know, the party side or the individual side, people rack up different bills. Uh, you have yeah. the Swedish bill that is you know, something you want to show your grandmother and she won't die, but you, you know, you show the American bill and you're just, you know, it can roll out the red carpet with the amount of figures that you're racking up. So, yeah. And it's not, arbitration is never an exact science, but it's, it's rarely as evident as in, in the cost awards on these points. And it's also, you know, how successful were the respective parties is also mm-hmm. a factor. So, hmm, the investor won on one jurisdictional point, it lost on three out of four merits points, and it also lost on its claim damages. So, right. although it was successful, it was not very successful, and <laughs> it would get um, 15% of its cost recovered by this. And it's like, why, why 15%? And, you know, yeah. it's a random math both in looking into how reasonable the costs were, were and how successful the parties were. I mean, if it's a Jewish mother, they're never successful enough. So, um, <laughs> no, just kidding. But I I think that that whole success thing, you put quotes around it, and there's really no end to that discussion that you can have. Um, bringing a counterclaim and not getting it, or, you know, is that success by the opposing party? Um, it's It's an endless barrel of fun. Yeah, for sure. I want to wrap up this discussion with uh, reading to you 
something that was tweeted uh, by Luke Peterson, the editor of I Reporter. Oh no, actually, credit where credit is due. It was originally tweeted by an, an energy arbitration lawyer named Carlos Bayorin, and it was retweeted by Luke. It's from uh, an interstate case from 1923, chaired by uh, uh, William Howard Taft, uh-huh. the 27th, 28th something president of the oh, U.S. Is this, also. is this my citizenship <laughs> <laughs> It is, because there's fun trivia, if you didn't know, uh, President Taft is the only person to serve both as president and uh, justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. That I vaguely know. Okay. So after he retired from the presidency, he was uh, appointed chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, at that time, or a few years into his tenure, he was appointed arbitrator in this interstate case between the UK and Costa Rica. And in the cost part of the award, he writes the following. So far as the payment of the expenses of the arbitration is concerned, I know of none for me to fix. Personally, it gives me great pleasure to contribute my service in the consideration, discussion, and decision of the questions presented. I am very glad to have the opportunity of manifesting my intense interest in the promotion of the judicial settlement of international disputes and accept as full reward for any service I may have rendered the honor of being chosen to decide these important issues between the high contracting parties. (laughs) I love that. It's so good, That's but it's really good. It's, it's absolutely a hundred years ago. <laughs> right, uh, that would never. You wouldn't see that today <laughs> ever again. But that would be a really good way to start as an arbitrator in the industry to kind of just be like, you know what, this one's on me, guys. Yeah, exactly. Pay kind me in honor. Build up goodwill. I think that's <laughs> great. Make America great again. <laughs> uh, that's Perfect. a great way to end the section. Let's move on. Okay, so back to the conferencing topic. Uh, one of the the persons who gave us a lot of feedback was a friend of the podcast, Sergei Dilevka, who is over at lawevents.com. And he uh, encouraged us to, uh, from time to time, do a rundown of relevant conferences. And I think that might be too much for us to do uh, although we should make a mention every now and then when it, when an interesting conference is coming up, particularly because uh, Sergey himself already has lawevents.com, which we can just recommend and tell people to go to if they're oh, looking for conferences. Because now in, in October, there are a lot of upcoming conferences in investment arbitration law, uh, at least. I don't know of any commercial arbitration conferences that are of particular interest, but there's investment arbitration conferences in, in, in Athens, in The Hague, in Geneva, in Oslo. A lot of interesting stuff just for the, for the upcoming month. But uh, this is not going to be a, a guide to which conferences you should go to. This is more of a, a manual on how to behave once you're there, right? <laughs> yeah, and war stories of what we've seen. Yeah, <laughs> and I also think we should talk about a little bit at, after uh, about how to behave on a panel. I think that, that would yeah, be that's right. That's good. That's very. Good. It's the the background is to this. In case uh, you are a listener who yet hasn't worked in international arbitration, is that arbitration lawyers go to conferences a lot. It's part of the uh, job. It is other legal fields, especially within law firms. 
laugh at the frequency of conferences and international arbitration. From time to time, it feels like all, all you do is, is conferences. Yeah. It's where the hands are shaken and the business yeah. is done. But why is that, though? I, is it because so much of the business is based on referrals from, from other lawyers as opposed to repeat clients? I think it's that. I also think that there's, there's such a veil that is put on what happens inside a law firm. So you hear these like legal 500 people, you know, the comments from the clients, but you never actually see other lawyers from other law firms in action um, yeah. because it's private... F- private uh, hearings and everything's done behind closed doors so this is the first time to be especially when you're on a panel or asking questions this is your first time to be you know cracking your legal knuckles as you can say and i as an academic i i I should say initially that there are really two different kinds of conferences it's the practitioner conference and the academic scholarly conference but the beauty with our field is that those tend to blend so most conferences are somewhere in between, and, and although most of the big ones are primarily aimed at practitioners, many of the practitioners are themselves also academics, and many of the academics in the field are involved in the practice, so you tend to have panels with, with both present, really. Uh, and my I, I personally uh, get the most benefit from going to smaller academic conferences that are too specific and too boring frankly for most practitioners well i think that's where we differ right off the bat joel is that you're going (laughs) to these conferences to gain knowledge and that's i think about 10 to 15 percent of the people going to conferences yeah and and, yeah exactly and that is why most conferences look the way they do in a sense it's not maybe primarily the content of the panels that you're interested in it is the the people in the room exactly but that's not in the pure academic context. That's the opposite. You have people who are generally not very apt at the, the mingling aspects, <laughs> but very, very good uh, within their field. So if you have 15 to 20 scholars sitting around a table discussing, you get so much more out of it in terms of substance than you do at the average practitioner's conference. But that being said, I also go to all these handshaking things. So. Yeah, and I mean, I think with these more specific conferences that you're talking about, it's it's almost refreshing because these these big conferences that are handshaking conferences, you just see the laziness of the planning committee, and you, you know, just like <laughs> old topics that come up. Everything. I mean, let's talk about third party funding again. I mean, there's like no real, you know, c- critical thinking on you know being avant garde in arbitration. It's it's you can tell a handshaking conference when you read this the schedule yes for sure and that's that's important and a good uh, first piece of advice i think but i mean that that type of conference has other benefits definitely i think we were both present at this young arbitrators dinner when a senior arbitrator in, in the stockholm community said without shame and i think that's inspiring that if you're busy and it's a conference in the city in which you're working just go to the breaks Oh yeah, it's, it's between panels that stuff generally happens. If, if you have a lot to do, you could still, you know, spare two times fifteen minutes to just show up and and talk to people and get get a feel of who's there and what they're doing. Even if you're not spending the hour and a half to to listen to the panel on third party funding for the ninth time. That is a really good tip. And to take it even further, I heard from an arbitrator when I was acting as secretary because we were talking about 
getting your name out there and everything. And he said that what he does is he puts his name, he signs up and doesn't go. So that when people are checking in and they're looking at the list of people attending, you see their name and then you, because arbitration is so small, your name is your brand basically. And yeah. so your your name is seen around. You're basically, you know, on page six of the New York Post. You're <laughs> you're seen be seen and be seen, even if it's just your name on the registration page, which I thought was very interesting that that people even think like that. Yeah, but also very expensive, right? Just because yeah. they are generally expensive. These conferences, some of them are free, but most tend to cost a couple of hundreds of euros at least. Right. But maybe that's not a problem if you're senior arbitrator no exactly and and the the benefit that you derive out of it because it's almost like you have to be there you you know it's it's the popular kid's birthday you you gotta be there (laughs) to have some sort of social currency true 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 but But what what about oh sorry go ahead what what are your pet let's talk about pet peeves at conferences because that's what i really got to talk about okay shoot my pet peeve at conferences are I have my first pet peeve at conferences are the question asking period, um, where people in the audience feel that they were snubbed by not getting a spot on a panel, and they feel <laughs> that this is their time to shine. And not only does it start with a sixteen minute intro of a story that they had of their case, where it was very complex arbitration dispute and big parties and big money involved leading to no question whatsoever, but just an anecdotal evidence that they are, you know, a member of this community. You have that person, and then you have the student who asks an entirely theoretical, uh, long-winded, fumbled, fumbled question. Um, but I, this whole question thing, I, uh, and then the introduction. <laughs> the introduction of people before they ask the question is something that really grinds my gears. It's like, they say back the rov or no the, no 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 hi the, my name's tiffany i'm a citizen because people say where they're from i'm a citizen of the world i heard that um and i, I used to work at this firm and now i work at this firm and now i work at that firm and i am an arbitrator on this okay not on my question <laughs> you know what i take that over the person who doesn't say anything and just jumps into the question okay Maybe Which just... is, that to me is an even bigger faux pas because normally the the moderator instructs people to give their names and info, uh, and if you don't, you have no context as to who the person is. That's true. No, I mean, yeah, we need to know who you are, but I definitely don't need your CV. Oh yeah, okay, true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you have any pet peeves? Have you thought of the, any? There were in the uh, the young Ojimid which is an email list that I highly recommend that our listeners subscribe to when, when where practitioners discuss, well, basically similar to the podcast, but, but in an email form that reaches uh, thousands of people. Uh, last year, I think there was a thread on this, actually, like uh, advice to younger people in the field, how to behave and not to behave at, at conferences. Mm-hmm. And there was um, Mark Cantor, who's a senior arbitrator, a retired former partner at a law firm in, in Washington, D.C. I mooted Actually, in front of Mark Cantor. Oh, okay. really? Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're both from California, so I'd imagine. Yeah. He, um, he sent uh, a, list, a set of 10 commandments for Q&A sessions specifically. Oh, this is great. Yeah, yeah some of them are sort of overlapping, but the, the first one is ask short, focused questions with good grammar. 
Preach. Second is Preach. Be, be polite. Okay. Very good. Three, add useful information for the audience. Always very, very important to, to if, if you're taking up five minutes out of the nine minutes that are allocated to questions with, you know, presenting your resume, you're already lost any kind of credibility you would ever have in that group of people for the rest of your career, basically. Definitely. <laughs> big problem. And that's, I mean, I cannot really emphasize this enough. It's maybe not a big problem for the younger audience it, who tend to be more mindful of rules and manners than some of the older generation. But if you're asking a question, ask a goddamn question. Just make sure that it ends with a question mark and not a statement or add your perspective unless it's super relevant and sophisticated, your perspective. Amen. Should I read down the list? Maybe that's not. I, 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 we don't. Well, you can, any other interesting ones on the list? Um, ask a question that you're sincerely interested in. Yeah. So don't ask the question for the sake of asking a question. Well, and that's the problem because I've heard from many people that, you know, you got to ask a question or to be seen. I, I heard it a lot as a student where it was like, you know, you're going to get a job if you ask a good question at a right panel and people are going to come talk to you. And that's very well true that you might get a lot of people talking to you and be like, hey, that was a really good question. And then people super nerdy trying to follow you up on that question. Yeah. Um, but I think that people use it as, as I said before, it was just a way to insert themselves into the into the panel, um, to be the fifth panelist, basically. Yeah, um, but that, that, then you're a bad question asker because if you're if you're moderately intelligent and moderately interested in the field mm-hmm. and you attend like four panels in a day, you should be able to to figure out at least one question to one of the panelists on one of the panels right. on one of the topics that are being discussed that day. A question that's an actual sincere question. Yeah, it's what, not that hard. On the on this list, does it talk about like networking do's and don'ts? I think yeah, not in the Mark Cantor email, but uh, were I a more diligent person, I would have read the entire thread from the young Ojemid. But I, I I have a vague recollection that that was something that was being discussed, and they also discussed in, uh, what you were alluding to earlier but we haven't gotten to yet, the, the speaking on panels, how yeah. to land that type of uh, slots. Oh, how to land those slots. Yeah, and also how to behave, I guess. Once yeah. you're on. But it was it, the the whole thread on young Ojimit was really targeted at you know younger practitioners and academics trying to network and getting into the conferencing circuit. Well, to quickly discuss about the panels, I mean, I think that the best way to get on a panel it's almost like uh what they say to actors that if you're not being put on a show write write a show for yourself yeah um and that i think Mm -hmm. is the best way to start is to um to make a mini conference or to set up a one session panel uh and put yourself either as moderator or put yourself on the panel and have someone else moderate it um that i think is like the quickest easiest way to kind of get into that Groove so people see you on the other side of the desk. Um, yeah, and also uh, an extension of that point is that you have to put yourself in the shoes of the organizers. If you're not doing it yourself, but you want to be on the radar of organizers, what do they do? They they Google and they talk to people that they know. So you need to be on their radar uh, by you know all the the conventional things that we know about but having published. It doesn't have to be something in a in you know Cambridge University Press published publication. It it could right. just be blog post or whatever so that when the organizers who are generally lazy slash busy people google 
third-party funding Northern Europe young lawyer, you need to be in the top 10 if that's something that you, you want to write about because then you are automatically, you know, you get the opportunity to get a foot through the door for the first time. Definitely. And then once, once you get on a panel, as always, this is the only, to me, the only really relevant piece of advice that I tend to give to students. It's not work hard, which is, you know, a given. It's be a good person. Always just behave yourself, be interested in other people, be nice to other people. And, and if, you, if you do that consistently, uh, you're going to get more speaking slots. Yeah. And I also think you need to prepare, uh, but, <laughs> and which is, you know, but it's not enough thing. to be a nice person. It's not enough to be a nice person. I, I think it's great to be charismatic up there, but I've also seen the professionalism that you're kind of, ta- uh, that you kind of alluded to, I think really needs to be taken into account that some people kind of don't see this as a real opportunity to sell yourself. I think yeah. people are either reading slides or I saw someone like acting out a skit to prove a point. And although I really appreciate, um, you know, the humor in it and I appreciate the thinking outside of the box, I also think that we're in a certain context and yeah, exactly. you need Dude, to behave appropriately. Know your audience. <laughs> know your audience, exactly. I mean, yeah, we're laughing, but we're laughing at you because we're all really uncomfortable that this isn't like <laughs> a buttoned up suit and tie presentation. Um, and that yeah. also leads its way into the drinks afterwards, um, you know. Yeah, exactly. And then th- th- I think that's the, the interesting thing that we should talk a little bit about before we wrap this up. The, the cocktail mingling part of the conferences, because we both sort of already implied that that's the, the, the most important part of going to the, to the conference. And I know a lot of people have, if not anxiety, then you could say that they are uncomfortable in that type of situation. You're in a, maybe in a foreign city, you have maybe one colleague with you, or you may even be all alone in a room with people that you don't know. Right. So many people are, are awkward in that position, and understandably so. But I think you should try to remember that you're not on a speed dating event where you have to find a sexual partner as soon as possible. You're in, <laughs> right. you're in a room with like some of the only people in the world who enjoy the same thing as you. You're a part of a community and at conferences, that's really when that community uh, manifests itself. It's, it's a people business. You're among people that, that you're predisposed to like and that goes both ways. They're predisposed to like you as well. Yeah. And people, you know, the walk up and putting your drink down, be like, is anyone standing here is completely acceptable and encouraged. I don't, you know, I I think you're actually helping because they're probably in some really boring conversation with someone they don't want to talk to. Uh, So whereas at the bar, you know, with your friends, it might be an uncomfortable thing to just walk up to random people and put your drink down. I think it's welcomed and encouraged and a good tactic to use. Yeah, and by and large, arbitration people, by design, are interested in, in culture and language and, and other people. It's it's hard to find a better community if you want to just you know, small talk, generally speaking. Then you, of course, have the, the odd uh, nerd in, in this right. field as well. But <laughs> since, since it is a people business, most arbitration people tend to be pretty good at, you know, just chit-chat and have a glass of wine. And I just think it's really underestimated this whole this whole aspect of um, of the networking part that people leave after the conference. They say, "I got the knowledge that I wanted to get," and then they leave. And never you know, ever leave before the bar closes and throws you out. 
That's when business cards are traded and that's who, you know, those are put in their little Rolodex and that's who they're going to say, okay, I need a lawyer from this country. And they spin their Rolodex and they say, oh, this person, I talked to them. I mean, they're not going to say this person asked a question and I'm going to like Google the event and find who asked the question. No, I mean, they're going to go where they, they get the business card and the person that they can... This is very American, but have a beer with. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's also how you get elected to the, to the president. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and then I just there, but there is a down, you know an easy downfall, which is being the overly eager, overly aggressive, high networker, where um, oh, yeah, yeah. just don't be transparent. Um, things come organically and naturally, as long as you're authentic and a good person. Yes, very generic advice we're giving we should write a self-help book <laughs> is be yourself right <laughs> embrace the the context in which you're in no, just no, no. be positive just be <laughs> positive forget about your child abuse and just be positive <laughs> yeah it is true though in this context i think that that you make a very valid point that as long as you're being yourself and you are there in the first place presumably because you're interested in in other people and in what they're talking about at the conference. So you should be able, if you're not able to, you know, talk in a friendly manner with a stranger for two minutes, maybe you shouldn't be an international arbitration. Right. right. Step one, get some help. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'll write another book. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, that will wrap up our third and final. Well, I guess it was our second happy, but that's our happy fun topic. And we yeah, we're already deviating from the structure we set out. I know, but that's arbitration. Keep it flexible. Yeah, that's true. Our discretion. So subscribe, follow us on Twitter, uh, email or no tweet at us or you can email as well. Actually, the arbitration station at gmail.com. There you go. Comment so on our website. Emails from uh, the website hosting service. It would be nice to get an email from a physical person right and we are always accepting new topics new ideas comments suggestions uh, criticism especially we love criticism <laughs> the self-hating sweet uh <laughs> you can direct those to joel uh i don't want to hear any of that <laughs> all, all right. right thanks a lot peace out <laughs>